Trinity Baptist Church, a community growing in faith, obedience, and joy. Every week, a member of our congregation gets to stand up here and release a personal testimony. And when that happens, uh, something's actually created. Each testimony is like a, a small individual pearl. And collectively, our testimonies make up a beautiful strand of pearls. And that's our corporate testimony. And this morning, rather than offering a personal testimony, I would like to offer to you that we, as a body, are in a new season. Yesterday was the third and final day of the School of Healing Prayer. It was hosted right here and trained over 250-some-odd people from across the United States. Trained us in the area of... um, praying in line with the heart of the Father and equipping us in a new way. If you are here for any part of that, may I ask you to stand and continue standing as I release this new testimony. I just feel that you're standing with me on behalf of of Trinity. Hearts were changed. Lives were saved. People were delivered. Many were set free. The first step of this was partnering with the Lord in prayer. A new testimony is released when we declare to others around us, this is who God is for me. This is the evidence that he is good and that he restores all things. Hosting an event like this in a small Baptist church on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, it's bold. It is a declarative statement that says categorically, we as a body believe that he is our savior, he's our healer, He's our king, and he's our sovereign Lord. We have made a declarative statement to New York City that our God is good, and he's moving in mighty ways, and we want to do what he's doing, and we want to say what he is saying. We're done with lethargy. We're done with mediocrity. We're no longer content to be an audience We want to be part of an army, the army of God. This house has such a rich history. You and I have inherited 85 years worth of prayers from each person who has occupied these spaces before we were ever here. Each prayer that we pray joins with their voices because prayers are cumulative. I love that. Part of your inheritance is this rich history that we are now praying in for the next generation. Each prayer, a seed in the ground. And when we pray in alignment with the Lord, we are promised a good return for our work. Because the Lord, when his word is released, he always receives uh, what he intended, what it was sent out for. May I ask you to stand if you have prayed on behalf of this church for more than ten years. Thank you, Lord. And in New York City, we all want to see a good return for our work. So may I show you part of the return on those prayers. And may I ask you to stand for those of you who have been praying on behalf of this congregation for more than five years. Thank you, Lord. And for those prayers, may I ask you to stand if you have prayed on behalf of this church for more than one year. Thank you, Lord. 
and the seeds in the ground from all of those prayers. May I ask you to stand if you are new to this community. We're blessed to have you here, each with a unique gifting and a different skill set. Your corporate worship, your love of God, your prayers have all birthed this new season. So I thank you, Lord, that you love us all well and that we are all called to be saints. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Debbie. I don't think I really even need to preach now. I think we're good. Um, As Debbie said, this... This past weekend was, um, our, the last three days have been really special for our church and for our city. I was not able to be here on Thursday and Friday. I, I was in Michigan with Deanne and flew back Friday afternoon and, and then was, was here yesterday. And it was just an amazing time of being in the presence of God and, and, feeling his power and, and the Holy Spirit just was all over this place. And somebody asked me this morning, you know, in light of what's going on with Deanne, they said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing great. <laughs> um, because I just got this huge bear hug from God yesterday. And it was awesome. And we just, you know, we just really um, were able to experience the love of God. And We're in week seven of this series called All Roads Lead to Romans, where we're walking through this um, amazing book of the Bible. And if you were here on the first week, you, we, we looked at chapter one, verse seven, where, where Paul says to all in Rome who are loved and called to be saints, you heard Debbie say that at the end of her scripture reading or at the end of the, our corporate testimony, that we are loved by God and called to be saints. And, and one of my prayers has been for us that each week when we leave this place, we would, we would feel that love of God just a little bit more, just a little bit more, so that we would continue to grow in our understanding and appreciation of that love. Well, as, as I felt that yesterday and as, as all of us who were here yesterday felt that, I pray that we feel that, again, feel that again. But I need to help us to appreciate that while there is this 
heart component, a big heart component to our faith. There's also a head component. And this morning we're going to jump into the head thing, okay? Because we're going to look at one verse. We're going to look at what is arguably the most important verse in our Bible. If you were going to build the Christian faith, and you could only choose one book of the Bible, you would choose Romans. And if you could only choose one chapter of Romans, you would choose chapter 3. And if you could only choose one section of chapter 3, you would choose verses 21 to 31. And if you had to choose one verse, you would choose verse 24. Because verse 24 is is what it all boils down to. And so I'm going to try to explain it well this morning, but if you don't get it this morning, then I want to encourage you to listen to the podcast every day until you get it. And if you still can't get it, then I want you to call me and then I will have you have lunch with James every day until you get it. Okay? So that's how important this verse is. So if we can put the verse up, and I want us to to read this together. This is chapter 3, verse 24 of Romans. Let's read this together. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us to get it. Because if we, can, if we can get this, then we can get you. And we want to get you. And Lord, while there's going to be a lot of head stuff this morning, I pray that it travels that long 12 inches from our head to our heart. And that while we, when we understand, it will, it will grow our hearts with an appreciation for the love that you have for us. We pray this. For your name's sake, amen. When I say the name Homer, who comes to mind? Simpson. Okay, we got, Luann is on it. Luann is is a little more classical than most of us. Most of us are thinking Bart, Marge. No, not the Simpsons. We're talking about the ancient Greek poet and playwright, Homer. How many of you read the Iliad or the Odyssey at some point? Yeah, most of us had to do that at some point in our educational process. What you may not know about Homer is that he was harshly criticized for his plays because he used a certain technique. When As any good playwright or dramatist does, they create this tension, this conflict that draws the audience in so that you're just waiting for the resolve. And that's what Homer does in his plays, that he draws and holds the audience by this this tension that exists. But then he uses this technique... In order to resolve that tension, there's a guy wire that comes out of the rafters down to the stage and an actor, um, you know, 
playing some god, whether it be Jupiter or Mercury or whomever, swoops down onto the stage and through his wisdom and his power, he resolves the conflict or the problem that the characters were having. This technique in the terms of the day is called Deo Ex Machina, which means God outside of the box or God outside of the machine, I should say. And so he was harshly criticized because um, his critics would say it's an indignity to, to humanity that, that this would have to happen because it implies that humanity is not strong enough or intelligent enough or wise enough to solve their own problems. Well, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320, creates this tension, this conflict, this problem that we can't solve. There is this standard of righteousness that God has imposed upon us, and it is beyond us, and we can't fix it. And this is where Christianity and the other religions of the world diverge. Because the other religions of the world, they, they feel that tension. They feel that conflict. They see that there's this righteousness that we all need to have that, that needs to be attained. And they try to come up with ways that in and of ourselves, by our intelligence, our power, our wisdom, we can fix it. We can come up with that righteousness. We can attain it. But the problem is there's never any assurance. They never really know if they got there. Christianity holds up the problem, recognizes the problem, but Christianity says, um, Deo ex machina. God outside of the machine. God swoops down in the person of Jesus from heaven to solve the problem that we cannot fix. God comes in. God tells us what salvation is, why we need it, that we can't earn it, that He has provided for me a righteousness through Jesus who died for me and rose for me, giving me something that I cannot earn and I cannot possess on my own. I can only accept it as a gift. I have. I have to have righteousness given to me, not earned by me, because I am impotent. (coughs) Now, last week in verses 21 to 23, we saw Paul restate the original premise of chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where he, he... He says, our problem is sin, but God has revealed this righteousness of God, and it is is acquired by faith in Jesus. He says, what I need to get me to be in right standing with God is provided by Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, and by accepting him and believing in him, I can be declared righteous. Put succinctly, we are saved through faith. Faith is the conduit of salvation. And as I said last week, faith is what we do when we can do nothing else, right? 
Faith is when you're standing on Jones Beach and I tell you, you got to swim to the Bahamas. I know how to get there. I know how to swim, but I can't swim that far. Faith is when we put our faith in the one who has gone the distance. Not only that, faith is not only what we do when we can't do anything else. Faith is what we do when we need to do nothing else. See, there's nothing that you and I can do that can add to what Jesus has already done. It is finished. Paul said to the Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become in him the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God. See, our righteousness is outside of us. It is conferred deo ex machina. And it comes through faith to all who believe. The conduit of salvation, the conduit of relationship with God is faith. In verse 24, Paul moves from the conduit of salvation to the constitution of salvation. In other words, what what constitutes, what what is our our salvation composed of? What are the, the guiding principles behind it? Paul is going to give us four terms in this verse that we absolutely need to understand. And if you don't understand them, then I'm going to sick James on you um, so that you'll get it. And these four terms are justified, freely, grace, and redemption. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of that comes by Christ Jesus. We're going to unpack those terms, but to, un, but to unpack those terms, we need to fully appreciate the ending of verse 23. Um, before we can really begin to grasp the grace of 24, we need to understand the fallenness of 23. Verse 23, all have sinned. All, universal, have sinned. Past tense, it has happened and fallen short. It's like a runner falling out of the race because they're so weak they can't get up. All have sinned. You see, according to God's standard, we have sinned. It is past perfect tense, meaning it is done, it has happened. I don't care how good you are going forward, you can be, you can be perfect going forward. But you can't fix what's already been broken. You can't undo the failure that has already happened. That's the state of our sinfulness. And our sin is not against a human standard. You're not falling short of Keith's glory. You're not falling short of of my standard. You're falling short of God's glory. You see, your, your mama thinks you're fine. Your grandma thinks you're perfect. Right? Problem is, your mama and your grandma aren't sitting on the throne. It's not their standard, it's God's standard. And we have all fallen short of the glory, the standard, the righteousness of God. So... How are we justified in God's sight? 
In short, it's a gift. Let's look at the terms. Justified. What does it mean to be justified? Justified means just if I'd never sinned. Just if I'd never sinned. See, just being justified and being forgiven are two different things. Um, forgiveness is what the family in South Carolina did with the man who shot their son. But that doesn't mean the man is justified. He's not justified until a judge declares him just and says, you are not guilty. That's where justification comes from. Justification is when the the one of infinite wisdom and power and judicial vengeance declares that I have attained to the perfect standard that justice demands. Not until the judge says, this man did nothing wrong, am I justified? When the judge declares me just, that's when I am justified. Now some of us men, um, husbands specifically, may be able to appreciate this. So husbands, we get into a fight with our wives Purely hypothetical, never happens. Um, so we have this, you know, argument and we're saying some things that we shouldn't be saying. And it's, and so, and then we come to our senses and we say, let's stop. This is crazy. What are we fighting about? This is stupid. Honey, sweetie, you know, and, and we, we embrace you know, and then, guys, we say the stupidest thing we could ever say. We say, babe, I forgive you. <laughs> right? What's your wife going to do? Even if she's never had Taekwondo, she's going to break that, you know. She's, and at best, you know, hopefully all you'll get is the look. And you know the look. See, your wife knows more theology than she thinks she knows. Because when you say, I forgive you, that is um, implying what? Guilt. It's implying that she did something that needed forgiveness. But she doesn't want that. She doesn't want forgiveness. She wants to be declared by you as having attained to the right standard of what a good and godly wife would be. She wants to be justified. Justified means when I believe in Jesus, God takes the perfect moral character of Christ and he clothes me in it like a robe. We who have believed in him have been clothed in him, Galatians 3 says. There's a great old hymn, The Solid Rock, the last stanza of which says, Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's justification. Doesn't mean I am faultless. It means I have been declared faultless. I've been declared 
righteous. It means that I've been declared righteous by the supreme judge of the universe. You say, Keith, I, I can't understand that. Neither can I. Keith, I, I, I can't relate to that. Neither can I. It is unique to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's how much he loves us. That in all of our failure, all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. He can still look at us clothed in the righteousness of Christ and declare us righteous, just just as if I'd never sinned. That's justification. You get that one? Three of you. Okay, we're... We're moving on. Justified freely. The Greek word is dorian, which literally means translated as a gift. Um, Justified as a gift, or maybe more accurately, justified as a free gift. All of us have seen these, these ads, these commercials that, you know, where they come on and they say, you know, receive this free umbrella. Receive this beautiful umbrella as a free gift when you purchase $25 or more of Estee Lauder cosmetics. Or, you know, if you subscribe now to Sports Illustrated, you will receive a year in sports video as your free gift. Now, we could actually sue them for false advertising because those gifts are not free. They have conditions on them. You have to purchase something to get them. You see, if it was a free gift, they'd just give you the umbrella without purchase. See, a free gift is unconditional. I read a story a a few years ago about uh, a cereal company that was running a, a competition for to get a new jingle, you know, the song that goes with the cereal. And and so if you won the competition, you would win this all expenses paid vacation to Hawaii. Well the woman won the competition and she took her trip and when she came back, you know what happened? The IRS showed up on her doorstep wanting to collect taxes from the the amount that the that her trip costs. And she said, why? They said, well, we're the internal revenue service and we collect taxes. We collect revenue. And she said, but I, I didn't earn this. It was a gift. It was a free gift. They said, did you write a song? Yeah. Then it wasn't a free gift. You did something to earn the trip and therefore it is taxable as income. You see, anytime there's conditions, anytime there's strings attached, it's not free. We were justified without a jingle. We were justified without having to buy anything. We were justified freely. It was a free gift. Justified freely, here's the next term, by his grace. Let me give you a working definition of grace. 
Grace is the unconditional benevolence of a great person bestowing upon one who deserves nothing, all that he can. Grace is the unconditional benevolence of a great person bestowing upon one who deserves nothing, all that he can. It is the Greek word charis, from which we get our word charity. Charity is what is expressed when someone doesn't deserve anything, and yet you just um, pour out your love on them. The reason that God sent his only begotten son was why? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say, for God looked down and, and saw how worthy the world was. And so he sent his son. It doesn't say, God saw how intelligent the world was. So he sent his son. No, it says God so loved that he gave. That's grace. That's charis. That's charity. When you make a charitable contribution, you can't ask for any favor in return or it's not charity. And during this campaign season, we've heard, you know, these... Um, um, guys who are running. What are they called? Candidates. Thank you. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the, it's been something, hasn't it? Um, you've got these candidates throwing back these accusations. Well, so-and-so took all this money from these special interests and therefore they're going to be beholden to those special interests. Well, if that's the case, if there's an expectation, then it's not charity. It's not a donation. See, if you're giving charity, you just give. There's no strings attached. There's no Velcro to hold on to. Grace, Karis, is bestowing your favor, your glory, your riches upon someone from whom there is no recompense due simply because you love them. It is unconditional. God has justified us out of pure charis, pure grace. Now this diamond of grace has many facets, so I want to turn the diamond a little bit so we can see another facet. Because grace is charity, it's charis, because it is unconditional, and there's nothing required in return, grace then does not have to be given. Right? You don't have to donate. You don't have to give. If there's nothing expected in return, then I'm not obligated to give you anything on the front side. God is not obligated to give us anything. God's grace is sovereign. He does not have to bestow it upon anyone. Martin Luther said, if the world had treated me as it has treated God, I would kick the vile, wretched thing to pieces. Had God saved one person, he would be infinitely gracious. Had God saved two people, he would be gracious beyond imagination. But God has not saved one or two. He has saved a host 
from every tribe and every tongue. And that host continues to grow. He did not have to save you and he did not have to save me, but he saved us by his grace. Let me turn the diamond again. Not only is God's grace unconditional and and sovereign, but it is unmerited. God saved us not simply without requiring anything in return. He saved us without there being anything in merit worth saving to begin with. You know, God didn't look down and say, boy, I did a good job with that Keith Boyd. I think I'll save him. He didn't look down and see any of our good works and say, that's worthy of saving. He looked down and chose to save us because he loved us. In stop. That's God's grace. Let me turn the diamond again. God's grace is inexhaustible. Um, It is exhaustive. There is nothing on earth which compares to the grace of God. God does not bring us to heaven and sit us in a corner and say, okay, I saved you, now sit over here and and be quiet because I don't want you to mess anything up. He saves us and brings us into relationship with him. And the Bible tells me that he bestows upon me all of the riches and the honor and the glory that he bestows upon his son. I am a co-heir with Jesus. I am a co-heir with Jesus. I am brought into the family and I will be lavished upon by God's grace forever and forever and forever in his presence. Friends, I don't have an illustration for that because it's exhaustive. God's grace is divine. It is exhaustive. It is why John would say of Jesus, through, through Christ, we receive grace upon grace. He didn't have another word. He said, I don't know what else to call it. It's just more grace. It's just grace. In him, Paul said, we have been made complete. Let me turn the diamond one more time. Another facet of grace is that it is costly. And you say, wait a minute, Keith, you just said it was free. Yeah, it is. But now you're saying it's costly. Yes, it is. Well, how can it be both things? It is. It's free to you and me. But it cost our Savior his life. There is a man in heaven right now with a gash in his side, with holes in his wrists and his ankles, with slashes in his brow, with stripes on his back. You want to ask him if salvation is free? Calvary. Calvary shows us that while salvation is free to us, it costs our Lord 
and Savior everything. But he did that to redeem us. Can you begin to grasp the meaning and the magnitude of God's grace? It is unconditional. He asks nothing from us. It is sovereign. He chooses to give it. It is unmerited. We have not earned it in any way. It is exhaustive. There are no words to describe it. And it is costly. It costs the Savior his life. And that brings us to the last word. Redemption. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The Greek word translated as redemption is an interesting word. If you, if you had a helium balloon and you let it go, you would use the Greek word luo, which means to free or to release. A derivative, uh, a derivative of that word is latruo, which means to free someone. And it has the idea of paying a price to, to free someone from bondage. Now, if you really want to make that word strong, you add the prefix apo, which means back, and you get the word apolutrosis, which literally means to, to pay something to free someone from bondage in order to bring them home. That's what apolutrosis means. Um, let me try to illustrate this. I'm going to use a different illustration than I used in the first service because I like this one better. Um, so how many of you are thinking about going to Rwanda? Good. Okay, so let's say you've been hearing about these Rwanda trips forever and you're just, you want to go and you're so excited. And so you go to the, the information um, time that we're going to have after this service. Jamie's going to be up there and lead that and Sarah. And you go and you want to hear about and you get pumped and, and you're all jazzed to go to Rwanda. So you go with the team in July to Rwanda. And you're in Africa, and things are going well, and the team has all done their thing, and, but then there's a coup, all right? And don't worry, this won't happen, but still go to the information deal. But Dave Page is out there laughing at me because I'm... So, but then there's a coup, and, and the, you know, there's all this turmoil, and the rest of the team gets out of the country, but they capture you, Okay? So now you're stuck in Rwanda and the rest of the team is gone and you don't know, you don't know what we're, what's going to do, what's going to happen. So we're on this side and so we say, well, we're going to put together the greatest task force, the greatest recovery mission of all time and we're going to get our undauntable Fred Atkins to lead it. And, and Fred is going to put this team together and he gets all these guys and then put on their camo and they sneak in in the dark of the night and they rescue you from your captors and they get you out and and they get to the border of Rwanda and they say okay here's our plane we we freed you have a great time hope you can get home and then they fly away 
you'd be saying, what? I, I don't want to be left here. Epilutrosis is not freeing you and then leaving you to fend for yourself. Apolutrosis is freeing you and bringing you home. And that's what Jesus did. So go to Rwanda. You won't get captured or anything. <laughs> hey, I've been, how many times I've been? I've been 11 times and I've come back every time. So that's. Nobody's ever gotten left. Friends, God has declared you righteous. He has justified you through no work of your own, and he does not ask anything from you. It is a free gift extended to you by his costly and unfathomable grace for the purpose of freeing you from your bondage and bringing you home. C.T. Studd, the great theologian, once said, Beyond Calvary... God cannot go. Beyond Calvary, God cannot go. There is no greater wisdom. There is no greater justice. There is no greater love. It just doesn't get better than that. God knew that we couldn't do it on our own. And because he loved us so much, like a a character from a, a Homer play, God, in the person of Jesus, swooped out of heaven and onto the stage of our life to save us and to bring us into relationship with him. And while it is free to us, it cost him everything. All are justified freely by grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God came down. He paid the price and freely offered not only a way out, but a way home. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that in times of, of difficulty, you, you show up and you give us a big bear hug to let us know how much we are loved. And I pray, Lord, that as we've thought about these terms from verse 24, that that understanding of your love has just deepened in us and that that we can feel it today and lord if there's anyone here this morning that has never experienced that love has never experienced your grace i pray that they might experience that today through faith in jesus we know that's the conduit. We know that is how the vehicle through which your grace comes. And I pray that they would place their faith in you today. And then, Lord, as we come to the table in a few moments, I pray that we would again be reminded of the extent that you went to so that we could be brought home.
for your name's sake. Amen.